Uh, turn, your, turn in your Bibles to the book of Colossians. Hey, listen, all we need is our Bibles, right? We don't need Bible Project and videos. And, uh, why Colossians? Well, obviously, it's, 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 it's part of Scripture. It's in, it's in the canon of Scripture. And all Scripture is profitable. Uh, and so that's one reason why I chose Colossians at this time. But uh, for a second reason is... It's going to be a very, I think, a very good complement to our study that all of our home groups are studying First John. So I think it's going to be a great complement to the to our First John studies in our home groups. And I think over time you'll see how, why I say that. Um, and and the, the third reason is, and this is not just true of Colossians because the Bible really, in many ways, is timeless. Uh, even though it was written in some cases thousands of years ago. It, it is still has a lot of contemporary significance. Some things never change. People sin. Uh, we sin. Uh, a lot of things never change. But the Colossians, for our culture, has a, a particular significance. And it, and it lies primarily in this. There was a time uh, in our culture when people wouldn't believe anything. We were... Um, we, we were still kind of in, in that modernity, that period we would call modernity, with scientific rationalism. And, and, and people were, they tended to be very resistant to any kind of spiritual belief or any kind of supernatural um, belief. Now, things are much different. Um, there's probably not a time that I don't drive my car that I see this bumper sticker in my car, and it says what? Uh, not my car. <laughs> Let me clarify. It's not on my car. Coexist. Right? And, and, and the letters are formed from all the different world religions and beliefs. You know, you have everything from, from Islam to Judaism. I think they do have a, a, something for Christianity in there, but they have Eastern religions. You know, the, they have a little picture of the, the Ramalama Ding Dong on there somewhere. But it's, it's, just a, it's just a conglomerate of spiritual beliefs. And so we live in a culture, it's no longer that people won't believe anything. The challenge we face is that people will believe everything. In other words, any kind of spiritual teaching that comes down the pike, they'll, they'll believe. They throw in their backpack. So yeah, I'll believe in Jesus. Yeah, but I'll believe in Buddha. Yeah, I'll believe in Allah. Yeah, I'll believe in uh, you know, uh, Eastern meditation. We, we do all these things. Uh, and we kind of throw them all in our bag. And we mix them all up and think we've got all our bases covered. This is what we call syncretism. Syncretism is really not, there's not really one dominant core belief, but it is, it is, a, it is a, a conglomeration of different kinds of beliefs. So while they may say they believe in Jesus, they also believe in reincarnation. And, uh, and they, they may believe in, in, in other things. It's, just, it's just, a, just a mixed bag of spiritual beliefs that... that people hold to and in fact we could you know even throw an atheism in there because atheism is a religion do you understand that atheism is a religion I, I debated this was years ago I debated an atheist on a radio program one time this is when I was involved in a lot of apologetic stuff with youth ministry and I, I debated an atheist and, and atheists will try to tell you that that they have an absence of belief right they, they say I, I have an absence of belief in God but that's really not true they have just as much of a belief system as you and I do. 
they believe there is no God. So, typically, here's, here's what our culture does, and, and particularly atheists in our culture. They say, you have to prove to me there's a God. And that's not an equal playing field, because what they need to do is they, they have to prove there is not one. Because they have just as much faith and belief as I do. They believe God does not exist. So don't let them get away with saying, I have an absence of belief. And that's not true. That's being disingenuous. They have probably more religious faith that God doesn't exist than many Christians have that he does. We live in a syncretistic, pluralistic, globalistic, is there any other istics I've forgotten, culture. In Colossians, the city of Colossae was facing the very same thing. And we're going to see this as we go through the book of Colossians. Uh, Megan, you want to put the map up for us? Let's see if we can get that to work. Just so you get an idea of, what, of, of where Colossae was. And, and, and I guess you could say is. You know, Colossae is the one they haven't really done a lot of excavation on, correct? Dan and Cindy have been there. Not much excavation. A lot on Laodicea, right? Laodicea is great. Laodicea is great. Herapolis is pretty good. In terms of ruins, Dan, obviously Dan and Cindy have been there. Uh, but here's Colossae, kind of give you an idea. Um, we're familiar with Laodicea from the book of Revelation, obviously. Uh, and then, of course, here's Herapolis. This was kind of known as kind of a tri-city area. Um, in fact, as we see through the, uh, as we're going to see through the book of Colossians, my, my theory is that Epaphras, or Epaphras, as the Bible Project pronounces his name, you say Epaphras, I say Epaphras, probably pastored uh, perhaps the church in, in all three of these cities. Um, they're relatively close together. Uh, so that just gives you an idea of kind of where they are. Uh, about 100 miles, 100 miles or so east of, uh, of, of Ephesus. Um, and that's what we're dealing with is the, the, the church in the city of Colossae. Now, of these three churches, Colossae was kind of the, uh, well, the runt of the litter. You had, you had Herapolis. Herapolis was known for its healing and its recreation um, it was kind of it, that was where you would go for vacation. This Herapolis, very beautiful. Um, Laodicea was known for its commercial trade, and it's it's uh, 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 it was a very wealthy wealthy city. Um, it, it, uh, it it was very very much involved in politics of the day. Uh, and then you had Colossae. Colossae really really had nothing going for it. It was just a small town. It was just a uh, of the three cities, it was the one, it was kind of, the, I would call, the runt of the litter. And so this is, this is the city um, that Paul, um, write, or the church in the city where Paul writes uh, this letter. Uh, again, the author is Paul. Uh, very few um, dispute that. Even the most secular skeptics agree that Paul is the author. But if you look at Colossians chapter 1... Says Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. Um, we've talked about this before, but just by way of reminder, Paul probably wrote very little of his letters. When I mean wrote, where he actually wrote it out. Uh, in many of his epistles, many of his letters, at the very end, he would write something, and, and we have that recorder. We say, "See with what large letters I write with my own hand." And you've heard my theory on that, that I think that he 
probably contracted malaria. We do know that in this life, in fact, this, this very valley, there was an outbreak in the late 50s, early 60s, and probably affected his eyesight. So he uses, now people have a lot of different theories of, of what that is, but I think it was probably his eyesight. So he had, he would have someone, he would dictate to someone and they would write it down. Uh, so in all likelihood, Timothy probably wrote down uh, what we now call the, the letter to the church in Colossae. And it, would then, and it was delivered uh, to the church, I think, with, uh, with Tychicus and Timothy perhaps taking it uh, to that church and delivering it to them. Where would it, would it have been read out loud? Keep in mind that these are letters that initially would have been read out loud. So as we go through the book of Colossians, I want you to think about what they would be, what they would be hearing when, when they heard this read to them. It would be read publicly. Not in the privacy of their own home with their own little uh, codex, but it would have been read publicly. And, and that's going to be important when you especially get to chapter 3 and he starts correcting them in some issues. Um, that's going to be uh, very, very important. What about the audience? What about the church in Colossae? Who were these people? Well, we, uh, we know that, pro- that obviously this was a, a uh, predominantly Gentile area. So his audience was more than likely predominantly Gentile. Uh, however, we're going to see as we go through this book that um, while the church was primarily um, would, would probably have been primarily composed or comprised of Gentiles, there was a significant Jewish influence on the church. And, and in fact, we know that there were I can't remember the numbers, uh, large numbers of called freedmen Jews in this area, part of the diaspora had settled in these, in these regions, this area. And, and so, while the Jewish, the, the Jewish remnant would have probably been smaller than the Gentile, the, the, the Jewish beliefs were, was having, or aberrant Jewish beliefs were really having a, a significant influence on this church, and not for the good. Um, so, primarily Gentile audience. In fact, uh, turn to Colossians chapter 2, verse 11. He says, in him, in Christ, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And Paul uses physical circumcision as an illustration, as a metaphor of, of spiritual circum- circumcision, of coming to know Christ and the cutting away of the, of the old life and the old self. And, and being renewed and being being redeemed, so this would have made sense to to, to the Jewish contingency in the church. This this metaphor would have made sense. Gentiles, not so much. Okay, so we we we, we take from that there was probably a again a, a Jewish community. Look at verse sixteen. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration. Or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality ever is found in Christ. So apparently there, were, there was a Jewish influence that was expecting this church and respecting these Gentiles to observe some of these Jewish traditions, some of these Jewish festivals. And he's saying, no, stop it. <laughs> Those things are just a shadow. Those things were types. Those things were not realities. They, they were pictures of Christ. Now Christ has come. It, it, it'd be like... Uh, oh, what's your, Ruth, what's your favorite restaurant? Your 
My house. My wife. I'm telling you, I'm a t- I can't wait to tell my wife. She's going to be thrilled to hear that. Uh, okay, let's just say you go to Outback. Okay? And, and, and you, you get a menu, and, uh, and you get a, uh, I don't know, what's a really good steak? I don't eat steak very much. We're so poor. Uh, uh, porterhouse. So you get a big porterhouse steak. And they bring it out to you, and you go, no thanks. I, I, just, I just want to look at the picture on the menu. That's all I need is the picture. He said, no, i got the porterhouse, the real thing right here. No, I, I'd, rather just, I'd rather just look at the menu. That's kind of, these Old Testament pictures and shadows and types were like a menu. And they, they had a picture of that porterhouse, but once you get that porterhouse and you, and you bite into that thing, and you start eating it, and oh, it's so good and so delicious, the reality of the picture, that's what Christ was. All of, the, all of those Jewish feasts, festivals, holiday, all of that stuff had nothing to do with Israel, really. They had to do with Christ. It's all about Christ. From Genesis to Revelation, it's about Jesus. It's not about Israel. It's not about the United States. It's not about the the, the economic union. It's not about any of that stuff. It's about Christ. And that's what we want to talk about. That's what Colossians is going to remind us of. It's all about Him. And we need to put Him in His place. Not just in our lives, but we need to, we need, as I prayed, we need to view him as ruling and reigning now. Primarily Gentile audience, but a lot of Jewish influence. And, and, and we're going to see not just typical Jewish doctrine, but a, a form of Jewish mysticism that had grown up um, in, in this time and, and was starting to influence their, their worship and their behavior. So, why the book of Colossians? Uh, it's a good complement to 1 John. We have, our, our cultures are very similar in many, many ways. The, the syncretistic, pluralistic, you know, this age of tolerance. Um, and so I think that we'll find this a very contemporary book for, uh, for our time. Paul obviously wrote it. He wrote it to the church in Colossae. Um, they were primarily a Gentile audience, but with a significant Jewish influence. Now, there was a crisis that arose in this church. And uh, this crisis uh, has, has been a source of great dispute among New Testament scholars as to the exact nature of it. Uh, originally, most people thought that, it was, uh, that, that they were combating uh, a, 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 what is called Gnosticism. Anybody know what Gnosticism is? Gnosticism is, is basically, the, the, well, it's very complex, there, there are many different forms, but essentially this. Gnosticism believes that, that, all, that, that absolute spirit is good, absolute physicalness is evil or bad. And between the two, between pure spirit and pure human, I guess you could say, or pure physical body, there are a series of emanations. So as you go up the scale, you have some that are, that are little, they're still more physical than they are spiritual, but the higher up you go, the beings become more spiritual than they do physical. And, this, and then ultimately, they, you, 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 can, you can go up this ladder, maybe I'll put it that way, you go up this ladder, and, and your goal is to become pure spirit. 
um, the distance or the space between pure spirit and pure physical, they called the pleroma or the fullness. That's what the Gnostics called this. Was this is called the pleroma? And so the way you the way you went up the ladder before you could get to the next rung, you had to learn secret information, uh, esoteric information. You know that's not available to anybody, but that these certain teachers would teach you certain truths that would enable you to climb this ladder. And that's a, maybe an oversimplification. That's, that's essentially Gnosticism. And so, people usually, Gnostics usually went one of two ways. One form of Gnosticism said, well, if my body is bad. By the way, this is, remember Paul's preaching in the Areopagus? And they were loving it. They were eating it up. Well, this new teaching, this is great because they are, they were syncretists. Man, I, we, loved, we, we loved hearing new philosophies and new, new religions. And what, what, when did they turn Paul off? Do you remember when we went through the book of Acts? When did they say, whoa, this guy's an idiot? Resurrection. A resurrection. So when he talked about the resurrection of the body, that's when they said, nah, we're not going to listen to this guy anymore. Why? Because they were Gnostic. Their goal was to escape the body, not to be resurrected in the body. So some would say, well, the body's evil body, so I need to punish my body. And so they developed very what we call ascetic lifestyles. Uh, they would deny their bodies food, and, and uh, uh, they would deny their bodies water, and they would flagellate themselves. And, and they thought that by doing that, uh, they, they would achieve a higher spiritual experience. That's one strain of Gnosticism, and we're going to see that, that in fact, they, they did, in fact, face that. And, 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 and they were taught that by doing that, you were really spiritual. Another strain of Gnosticism said, well, if my, my body and spirit are completely separate, and, I, and, and, and one, at one time they are going to be completely separate, then I can do whatever I want with my body, and it has nothing to do with my spirit. And so, the other strain of Gnosticism was just in gross immorality. And, 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 and they could do anything, they felt they could do anything they wanted, and not be, be smudged spiritually, because those two were completely separate, and they had nothing to do with each other. Uh, so these are definitely influences that we see uh, in, in the Church of Colossae. But again, Gnosticism as a, as a fully orbed um, uh, spiritual movement really didn't come about until late in the 2nd century, really from 2nd to 4th centuries. So if this was a form of Gnosticism, it would have been what we call an incipient form, a very early form of Gnosticism. Um, so many, what they've done is they, they, they've now said, well, no, we, we, we're not going to say that it was Gnosticism per se, but we'll call it the Colossian heresy. And it was kind of a, a collage uh, of influences. And, and, and there were probably three, maybe four. Um, one was they faced pagan philosophy. Obviously, this, is, this is probably would have been predominant because this, these were, in all likelihood, Greeks who had come to know Christ, who had come out of pagan lifestyles. And, and do you know what I mean by Greek pagan lifestyles? I'm talking about I know, small, sex with, with cult prostitutes, drunkenness. And, it, and it, it's amazing to me that Paul actually had to write letters and tell the church, hey, you've got to stop that. <laughs> by the way, you've got to stop that. You can't do that anymore. They, they were greatly influ- influenced by pagan philosophy. Um, look with me at chapter 2, verse 8. 
See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. This could be, or the, the elemental principles of this world. Uh, we're going to see that, in fact, they were probably being deluged with pagan philosophy, with the, this, uh, that Paul calls, calls it empty and deceptive. Listen, hum, humanistic philosophy is not benign. It's not just, a, well, it's just another way of looking at things. Humanistic philosophy is deceptive and will deceive you and will deceive us. So we see that whatever, whatever this thing was, whether it was Gnosticism, technically Gnosticism or not, they, they were being uh, threatened by pagan philosophy. Number two, Jewish legalism. And we, we already read some of these. You know, chapter 2, verse 16, the um, uh, religious festivals, new moon celebrations, Sabbath days. Um, look at uh, uh, chap, uh, verse 20. Since we died with Christ, the elementary spirit force of this world, why as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? Some of the, the, probably some of the Jewish restrictions on what they were to eat, what they weren't supposed to touch. Uh, again, these were all types and figures and shadows. Um, he said, don't let anybody judge you by these things. So they were, they were, they were um, faced with Jewish legalism. But, but in addition to that, they, they were faced with probably, well, I guess what I would call a, a form of Jewish mysticism. Whereas these other ones were, were probably, you know, standard Orthodox Jewish uh, beliefs. They, they were also uh, subject to Jewish mysticism. Uh, look at verse 18. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels... Disqualify you. We know we know that there were there was a movement within Judaism that uh, worshipped angels. They had this uh, this notion of uh, uh, that that these beings were to be worshipped. And it's interesting because what is the author of Hebrews in the very first chapter? What is what is one of the things he tries to say that Christ is superior to angels? This mysticism of of worshiping angels. Um, that was not part of the Old Testament. In fact, the angels we see in the Old Testament, what they do? They said, don't, don't, don't give me worship. Um, they refused worship. Uh, verse 23. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Again, this was probably the, the, the aspect of, you know, I'm going to punish my body. And I'd be more spiritual that way. But part of all of this was, was, I guess it really wasn't a teaching or a movement, but a result of all this was, was rank immorality. Um, their culture was um, subject to, uh, what's the word? Um, they just were known for just gross immorality. Chapter 3, verse 5, he has to remind them, put to death. Whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil, de- evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Why would he have to say that? <laughs> but the one common thread that we're going to see uh, of all of these movements, whether it be pagan philosophy, 
whether it was Jewish legalism or Jewish mysticism or just rank pagan immorality, all of them had one thing that was consistent and that they dethroned Jesus Christ. They dethroned him. They denied his true nature. They denied his sovereignty. And, and I will say this, any, any false teaching will almost always start there. An aberrant view of Christ. They have to dethrone Christ. They, 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 they deny his true nature. They certainly reject his authority. And so Paul will correct and challenge his audience's understanding of Christ by insisting on the centrality of the Lordship of Christ. Let me say that again. He will emphasize, Paul emphasizes in this book, the centrality of the Lordship of Christ. Chapter 1, verse 18. This is, I think, probably the theme verse of the entire letter. And he is the head of the body. He's talking about Christ. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have preeminence, supremacy. Uh, it, it is. It is. He is first. He is superior. He is surpassing. And this will. This will be Paul's underlying. Um, challenge to them is that Christ is central. He is the supreme authority and Christ's supreme authority is going to be proclaimed in this book. And He is to be recognized as the Lord of the cosmos as well as in every realm of human existence even in how I live my life. His authority extends to how I live my life. Well, let's wrap up. Let me give you a quick outline. This will be really easy. And you know, I, I, maybe sometimes my outlines are, are too reductionistic. Um, chapter one, and it goes into a little bit of chapter two, but we'll say basically say chapter one is doctrine. Christ's preeminence is declared, and we're going to see a classic passage, uh, chapter one, verses fifteen through twenty, uh, that the Jehovah's Witnesses butcher. We'll talk about that. Um, but Christ's preeminence will be declared in chapter 1. In chapter 2, we have danger. I always think of Will Robinson. We have doctrine. Chapter 2, we have danger. Um, Christ's preeminence will be defended against pagan philosophy. It will be defended against Jewish legalism and Jewish mysticism. Chapter 3 is duty. So we have Doctrine, danger, duty. The duty is Christ's preeminence demonstrated. Demonstrated in my personal purity. Demonstrated in my relationships to others. Demonstrated in how I share the gospel. Demonstrated in, 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 a, in a fully orbed um, understanding of, of my life. Christ's preeminence declared. Christ's preeminence defended. And Christ's preeminence demonstrated. We're going to walk through each one of these. So we need to be reminded, just as they did. We need to be reminded um, and have a renewed commitment to the preeminence of Christ. 
that he is all-sufficient. He wasn't just necessary. He was sufficient for salvation and for our life. And for our ongoing life. We, if we, in fact, we, uh, if you're in the Uechi Home Group, plug yours right now because I'm going to give you some answers tonight. Um, uh, and I just... Don't worry about it because I just lost my train of thought. What was I going to say? <laughs> what do we talk about? <laughs> what do we talk about Friday night? Anyway, he is the all-sufficient Christ. Um, he's not only all we need; um, he's all we should want. I, it was going to be something really good, Mark. I couldn't hardly wait. Okay. Um, listen, once we understand uh, what his preeminence really means we ought to live our lives accordingly. Um, and we need to, like the church in Colossae, we need to put him in his place. In his rightful place. In our lives. And how we live our lives. How we think. How we worship. How, how we work. How we play. How we, how we converse with others. All these things. His preeminence has a direct impact on. That's what the book of Colossians is about. And that's what we're going to study now through the rest of the, pretty much the rest of the year. Let's pray, and uh, we'll be dismissed. Lord, we thank you for this this book. Um, Thank you for your supernatural um, inscription of it, and your supernatural preservation of it. That is, it has come down to us, and we can read and study the very things that our brothers and sisters in Christ in Colossae did thousands of years ago. Some things, many things, most things, have never changed, as we will see. So, Lord, I pray that as we, uh, as we read this book, as we study it, we'd be renewed in our joy, renewed in our commitment, renewed in our understanding of the preeminence of Christ, not just in our lives, but in this world. So, Lord, we thank you uh, for the journey we we ask and trust and know that you are going to lead us and guide us and, and teach us all things. So we thank you and we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Would you please stand and join hands?